If you're new to us and you're visiting with us, I'd invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Ephesians. We'll be in chapter two and um, we're working through that book. And once I get to my page, I'll tell you what number it is in case you want to open up your black uh, pew Bible. It's on page 976 from Ephesians chapter two. And we'll look at uh, verses eight through 10. And I know we covered some of eight the last time we were in the book, but I wanted to sort of recap it and use it to help us understand the final um, verse in that section. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do pray now that your word would accomplish the purposes for which you send it. We do pray that those of us who might not be acquainted with the saving grace of Christ might today be the day that they understand the gospel in its clarity and in its beauty might today be the day that your saints are reminded of what we're saved for. We're not saved by our works, but God has desired that good works flow out of his grace. And so would we be reminded that you have made us and saved us for a purpose? And would you speak through your servant that it might be uh, beneficial for your people? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached a lot of sermons on this book of Ephesians, when he gets to this particular two, three verses that we're in this morning, he actually says that, I suppose that with certain respects, that there is no more important doctrinal statement in all of Ephesians. And he says, we're here face to face with perhaps one of the most crucial statements that will be found anywhere in all of Scripture. And the question that's before us this morning is, what is Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about? What is uh, before us this morning that he would say is probably one of the most important verses in all of Scripture? Paul is unpacking the beauty of God's grace. And I've thought this week about what do I desire most from Redeemer? Or what I look at and say that if we got this one thing right, then all of the things would sort of fall into place, not without work, but if we got this one thing right, uh, that we would see the fruit of it. And what I keep coming back to is the grace of God. That if God's people truly understood the grace of God in its beauty and in its glory and in its heights and in its majesty, it would radically change us. And so I agree. I think this is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, that if you're having doubts about what it means to be a believer, that if you're having doubts about what it means for our works and where they fit into God's economy of salvation, if you're having doubts about how in the world can I, a sinner, actually do things in a way that pleases a holy and righteous God, then I would say turn our attention to this passage. And so what I want to do this morning is just Unpack why I think the grace of God is really, really good news. And so I, I think grace is good news 
because of its arrival, right? I think the order in which grace arrives to us or comes to us makes it really, really good news. Now, here's what I'm getting at when I say the order of grace is good news. I'm thinking about just when does grace come? Because you really have two options, right? You have one option that grace comes to you that when God looks at you with favor and love and affection and gives you the reward of heaven, the reward of himself, the reward of his blessing for which you cannot work. Like 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 how do we perceive that that goodness comes to us? You it boils down to two answers. It either comes to me when I present myself holy and righteous before God and God looks at me and sees something in me and says, you know what? You're deserving of my grace and goodness. Right. Or it comes to me apart from that. So this week was Jackson State's homecoming. And it's one of the first years that I did not participate in anything. Right. But I I miss it. Right. I love it. I love parts about it. But my my favorite night of Jackson State's homecoming is uh, what we call Street Jam. And if you go to Jackson State, you'll know exactly what Street Jam is. Street Jam is like, it's usually the Tuesday or Wednesday before homecoming game. And it's when all of the student organizations on campus, all 100 of them will come together for the biggest fundraiser that they will get to do every year. And so you have to put your application in. You have to tell the the student affairs what you plan on selling and they'll give you a table and you tell them if you need a fire extinguisher, if you need an electrical outlet. I'm serious, right? They they go way out, right? They got like smoked turkey necks. Like one group is like they're selling smoked turkey necks and we used to do fried catfish. My dad would pull up his trailer to on Lynch Street and we'd be selling fried catfish plates off the back of a trailer, raising money for our summer conference. And uh, you, you get guys, man, who pull out their uh, PlayStation 3s and they will get five big screen TVs and they will hook up a Madden tournament and you get and you pay five dollars to pay the entry fee and you get to watch guys play Madden and you can tell they don't go to class. Right. <laughs> you can tell all they do is play video games. They're out there juking and doing stuff on the, and you get to watch it. Right. You pay an entry fee and they're raising money. Right. My favorite group was Outspoken. And Outspoken is kind of the drama acting kind of group, that, that spoken word, I mean, I'm sorry, spoken word group. And what they would do, they were really creative. They didn't have a booth, right? They would uh, put where these cardboard fronts and backs, and it would, on the cardboard, it would write, we will spit for bread, right? And it, he doesn't mean we'll spit on the ground at you to give us bread. He's talking about we will, we will, we will freestyle. You, 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 we will do a freestyle rap if you will give us money, right? That's what they're saying. And so these kids walk around, right, with this, this, this bag where they're taking donations and you stop them. If you stop them, they'll just start freestyling. They'll just start doing this rap. And, and the, the drama group would do something like it, like, except we'll act for food. And so they might act out. You, you tell them you, you want to give some money and they'll stop in front of you. Well, what movie do you want us to act? And they'll act out your favorite scene out of your movie with the hopes that you will pull money out of your pocket and put in their bucket. Right. And so they're there to impress you. And if they pre- impress you good enough, then you'll give them something. If they do a really good job, then you really give them a good tip. Right. I kind of wonder, do we think that God's grace works that way? Do we think that God is sort of at the street jam of our lives saying dance for me, saying sing for me? and do all these good things. And if you impress me, then I'm going to give you my favor. Like, do we really think that God's grace works like street jam at Jackson State? And the answer is no, it doesn't. 
However, the ideology behind it is really, really popular. This idea that you can earn and, or merit the favor of the gods or God on account of what you do, it's at the heart of all other religions. Now, I know this because uh, I studied some, some, a little bit, not a whole lot, but one of my best friends growing up is loosely affiliated with uh, the Nation of Islam, and so he, he would call himself a Muslim. Um, and so just I've had spiritual conversations with him sort of about uh, spiritual things. And I'm asking him, like, bro, like, talk to me, man. Tell me, how, how, do you, how, how are you saved? Like, how are you made right with God? And he goes on to talk to me about the five pillars of Islam. And so I've been kind of, all right, is that, is that, is that, is that true? And so this week, just in light of some things that have happened in New York, I said, hey, I just want to read. I just want to read about uh, Islam and, and sort of what it embraces in terms of how a person is made right with God. And so just to let you know, like, I'm not off my rocker. I'm not like off the deep end. I'm a believer. I think there is one name given under men and women by which we must be saved, and it is Jesus Christ. I think Christianity makes a compelling, gracious, loving case for how men are saved. But I want to give you a window into how religions work, right? And so even this week, that, that if you keep up with what happened in New York about the, the guy that they're calling a terrorist who rented a car and drove it and, and killed eight or nine people, and just, but you have some uh, Muslims who are sort of reaching out and saying, wait a minute, and this is, this is from an article I read. It says, in recent times, a violent culture of martyrdom has arisen that glorifies suicide terrorism as a means to salvation. But the Quran unequivocally condemns the perpetrators of suicide to hell. And he, he cites this first, right, from chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. And do not kill yourselves. And whoever commits this violation through aggression and injustice, we shall cast him into the fire. And this is easy for God. And so right, right here, we're, we're quoting not an extremist group, right? We're quoting mainline orthodox um, Muslims, right? And, and, and what they're saying. And so he also goes on to write in Islamic soteriological doctrine, that's a fancy word for how we're saved, salvation comes or deliverance comes from sinful condition is in part upon one's deeds. And he lays out what are those deeds? And the first deed is shahada, bearing witness that there is no deity but God and Muhammad, his messenger. The second uh, deed is Salat, performing, performing the five daily prescribed prayers. The third one is observing the fast through Ramadan. The, the fourth one is Zakat, contributing to the regular charity to help the poor. And finally, you can or, or should make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in your lifetime if one can afford it. And he goes on to say, he goes on to say that anyone who seeks to take the Quran seriously cannot deny this but we cannot deny that Allah is not only the great creator, but he is loving. Practically every surah in the Quran opens with these statements, in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate. The frequency of this phrase shows that God's mercy and compassion are foundational to Islam. Now, what, is all, what does all that mean? If you listen carefully, you can see the, the, the soteriological structure. In other words, how are they saved according to their own book? And you get the idea? It is by your works. You do these five things. But those works, they earn 
the mercy of Allah. Because you do these things, this God who is merciful will then extend mercy to you. Now, that, that, that sounds close to Christianity, right? But it's worlds apart. It's worlds apart because of the passage that we just said, that we just read. Paul says, for by grace are you saved. Through faith, not on account of your works, so that no one may boast. You see the emphasis? Whereas other world religions might say your good works, they commingle with grace or they commingle with mercy and you just do good enough stuff and dance enough and go visit enough and give enough. And then you might just earn the mercy of Allah. And here's what the Christianity of the, the, Christianity of the Bible is saying. You can't earn it. You don't have to earn it. That God freely, freely out of the goodness of his own hearts because he simply wants to. He extends grace. It's not by works. In other words, if you were to ask me, when does grace appear? Does grace show up knocking on your door when you get your life together? Or does grace bust through your busted up life and says, you know what? I want you. I love you just as you are. And I will change you in and through my son. You don't have to get it together. My grace goes to busted up people who can't get it together and who don't have it together. The only thing that makes you prerequisite for grace is your sin. That's what you bring to the table. That's what we bring to the table of our salvation. Not works. It's important. It's a distinction. That the order matters, right? So... Are you smarter than a fourth grader? I want to put that question before you. There's a popular game show. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? So I'm, I, I asked Jimmy, and in the, in the first, first I, I messed this whole thing up. I had this great idea to do, but I'm just going to, I think we got it right now. So here's the thing. This is fourth grade math. This is the order of operations, right? Now, I'm not going to put you on blast. I'm not going to say solve this problem. But when you look at this problem, right, you, you kind of got to figure out where do I start? Like, what's first? Now, the answer could be A, and the answer in A, you're going left to right. That's all you're doing, left to right, right? And you get 328. Or you could go B, and you're, at B, you're trying to go right to left, right? There, or the answer is C, right? And the answer of C says what? That there's an order. Now, if you're like me, I learned, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, right? And so when you do that, it does not matter how complex that problem gets. Like we can make this problem five pages long, but there's an order and the order says what? You have to do the parentheses first. And after your parentheses, then you do your exponents. And after your exponents, then you do multiplication and then you do division and then you do addition and then you do subtraction. Here's the thing. If you don't get the order right, I don't care how hard you work at the problem. It is not the right answer. The order of operations matter, and the first thing you have to get to before you get to multiplication or addition or subtraction, you have to solve the parentheses. Thank you, Jimmy. You know, grace is that delicate and that fragile, it's preeminent. You start there. If you start anywhere else 
other than God's grace, you will make a mess out of what Christianity is and what it's about. If you think your good works commingle, let me start with my works. You nullify grace. God's grace comes to God's people apart from and before they have anything to contribute to grace except sin. And that's really good news. Because there's only one hero of the Bible. And it's not me and it's not you. And whatever you believe about earning God's favor, what you are actually saying is that, Lord, I can save myself. I can be good enough. And the moment you put anything out there and say this thing that I do, it makes me fit for salvation. You nullify the cross of Christ. That if I could be made made righteous according to the law, Paul says Jesus died for no reason. In other words, there's one person in the driver's seat of salvation, and his name is Jesus. There's one person. Heroes die, right? Heroes die. And in Scripture, the hero of Scripture dies, and he raised again that what we receive is grace, and what becomes good news for us was anti-grace for him. It was bad news for him. God's grace to us in Jesus It's preeminent. It's first. It's great. And it's fragile. And when Paul talks about grace, what makes it good news is that it comes to you and I and our brokenness. And God is saying, I know what's going on in your life. But my grace can cover that. I know what you did last summer and my grace can cover that. I know what you're thinking right now and my grace can cover that. I know what you did this morning, and my grace can cover that. This whole idea of God's grace being preeminent, it's important and it's crucial, right? That one of my favorite uncles, he is going to be with the Lord, and his name was, we called him Big Jesse, right? And growing up, I used to love to see Big Jesse come around. Because Big Jesse would have like a a trunk full of candy. (laughs) He just like keep candy, right? Just but I was smaller, like he looked like he was like seven feet, and he was just this just gigantic man, and he would just sneak us candy, right? And so you see Big Jesse pulling up, and if you were a kid, like you got excited because you knew what Big Jesse had with him. Like he had this boatload of candy that he was hiding from my aunt Charlotte. He was just giving us candy. But here's the thing. We went to Big Jesse for candy because we knew he already had it. He would go to Sam's and just load up on junk and just give it to us. And your father in heaven is like that. He is a boatload of grace. And he's showing up and he's not saying dance for it or do anything for it. He's saying, I have ample enough to give to you. I want to. I want you to drink deeply of it. That's why Paul says God's grace is good news because of when it arrives. The second thing we see about God's grace that makes it really, really good news is what grace does. The power and operation of grace. What does God's saving grace do to you when it comes upon you? That's the question I want to unpack here. There's a site that I love to go to. It's called ClassicCarLiquidators.com. 
Now, if you can tell by the site, then you know it's, it's classic antique cars, right? Uh, one of Deshaun's parents has this uh, antique, I won't tell you what kind of car it is, but it's silver with like 22-inch rims on it, and uh, I, it's probably like a, a 72, but I love it, right? And every time I see it, I'm like, man, I got to covet. Like, I, I'm coveting. Like, I want a car like that. <laughs> but if you go to, like, classiccarliquidators.com, uh, you'll see three types of cars. The first car is kind of the ones that you'd expect, that somebody has had in the shed. It's just rusted and busted and torn up. And you can get those for maybe fifteen dollars to $3,000, you know? There's a second layer of cars you can get that when you look at it, it's, it's really deceptive, right? Because the outside has been repainted. There's new chrome. There's new tires. But then they sort of give you pictures of the engine and the insides, and you can see why it's $3,000 or $4,000, right? But then there's a third level of car where it's not one square millimeter of the car that has not been touched. That they put power steering in it, they put a new engine, new seat, new upholstery, new wiring, and you're gonna pay 50 grand for that car. I wonder how we think about God's grace and what it does. Do we think that God's grace just slaps some paint, slaps some paint on you and just makes you and I better versions of our old selves? Or do we think the grace of God comes to us and radically touches everything about us? What you see in the text is that in Paul's eye and his mind, that God's grace did not just show up to make you talk like a Christian or wear long skirts and act like a Christian in public. God's grace came to you and I to make you and I completely new. Now, you see it in the text. So you see this wordplay, right? Paul says in Ephesians 8 and 9 that we're not saved by works. And then you get to verse 10. He says, as a matter of fact, look at what it says. For we are his workmanship. Right? We're his workmanship. You can't work for salvation, but I'm going to up you. You're my work. Right? That, that's what Paul is saying. You're my work. You can't work. I'm working on you. That's what God is. That, that's what Paul is getting at. But I think the four right there is using in an, is used in an inf inferential manner, which means that the, the way Paul is using it is he's actually summarizing everything he just said. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. He says, you were by nature children of wrath. And he goes on and on that you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Christ. Right. So what Paul is doing is rounding out everything he just said when you get to verse 10. OK, what's now true in light of everything God has done? What is now true? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. You are his workmanship. You are his special project. The, th this word right here is used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says that, th that God's work is on display in things that are created. And you get the image there? You, as a believer, when you trust in Jesus, you're his handiwork. His handprints are all up on you. He's doing something on you and in you. That's what Paul is communicating. But notice what he says, that you're not just his workmanship, but you're also created in Christ Jesus. In other words, that word right there, created, it doesn't mean the traditional creation. It actually means something newly created. 
something never created before. And so you might read this, you are God's workmanship, his handiwork, something he has put his hands on, newly created through the work and person of Jesus. In other words, when the gospel comes and you believe that something happens at the point of salvation, you and I are made new people. And it's through the work of Jesus. And so it means this on a fundamental theological, spiritual level, that when you're saved, your sins are forgiven. They are cast away from you as far as the east is from the west, and God remembers them no more. When you're saved, the righteousness of Christ, it is yours, and your sin is imputed upon him. When you're saved, you're adopted into the family of God, but you want to know what else happens when you're saved? You're new. You are made a new creation, a new creature in Jesus Christ with new desires, with a new heart, with a new disposition, with a new inclination towards the things of God. And this is all the work of God through Jesus. And therefore, when God's saving grace comes, it doesn't come just to make you a better version of your old self. It doesn't just come to make you sound like a believer. He comes like that car that has been fully restored from the inside out, occupying that same shell and veneer of a car. But you can tell the guts on it, the insides of it, the workings of it. They have been made and restored to a position even better than the original. And that is the trajectory you are on if God's saving grace has come upon you. You are on this trajectory. The power of God has come and it's made you new now by his grace. And his grace is going to follow you and shape you and be with you all the way until God brings you home. And when Jesus Christ returns for you, that you will fully be everything that grace started back there. It's the same grace. And that's why they can say grace has brought me safe thus far and God's grace will bring me home. You will be in your future version of yourself, better, a better version of yourself, even back in the garden where you could sin. There's coming a day when that pendulum will swing the other way and you will not be able to sin. You will not be able to betray the Lord. Sin will be like Elliot Green says in a museum somewhere to look at. You're new right now, though, Christian. You live on this earth. You work for the same job. You're married to the same man. You're raising the same kids. You live here on earth. But you're new. And a lot of the Bible says, put to death the deeds of the flesh and present yourselves new to the Lord. You're new. Right here and right now, Christian, new. So Grace does. There's a story um, about St. Augustine, who was a North African bishop and early church father. And if you've read his confessions, I'd encourage you to read parts of it. It's, it's really good. But he talks a lot about his upbringing and some of the sins that he wrestled with. And um, he lived with a woman who was not his wife. And they had a child together. And he struggled with 
just lust and those types of sins. And so here we are years after his conversion. And the story goes that as he's walking down the streets of Carthage, that a former lover calls out to him. And she says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he, he keeps walking. Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And finally, he turns around. And this is what he says. He said, this is what he says. She says, Augustine, it is I. And he turned around and said, but it is not I. The old Augustine is dead and I am a new creature in Christ. And he kept on walking. Now, here's the question that you have to wrestle with. Was this dude in left field? Was he being mean? Or was he on to something? He was on to something. That old man that lay with you, something happened back there at the cross. He was put to death. And I'm a new man walking. And I'm in the same skin, but there's a new work that's going on in my heart right now. I am a new creation, and my posture is towards my God. And I can't go back and put the grave clothes on. I'm new. That's what grace does. It comes to you, and it says that in Jesus Christ, you're new. New. The last thing we see about grace is the outcome of grace. It's also good news. And the question that I'm after there is, what does the grace of God produce? What fruit should we see or will we see in our lives? And this is a really big deal, right? If you want to sort of ask yourself, how do I know when grace comes home? How do I know when the good saving grace of God is mine and it's embraced me? Paul and uh, James would say that you will see fruit. Now, I'm going to show you where you don't see it and what Paul says about it. You don't have to turn, but if you, if you want to, you can. You can turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 12. You don't have to. I'll, I'll explain it. But, uh, man, Crete was just, man, it was a, a bad city, right? This is what Paul writes. Uh, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. This is in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. And if you read Titus chapter 1, verse 13, you know what Paul says about it? And they're right, right? He says, and their actions, their testimony is true. And so what was Paul saying? Man, there were some goons in Crete. Like, they were just wild and just, they had professed to be believers, but it was not showing any fruit in their lives. And so you get to the next chapter in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation for all people. And the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? In the present age. You see what Paul is saying? The grace of God produces self-control. It changes us not then in the future, but in the present age right here and right now. That's why James goes on to write, what good is it, brothers, if some of you say you have saving faith by grace, but there are no works, is that real faith? Faith by itself without works is a dead faith. 
Why? Because the grace of God makes you new and it makes you alive. And so when the life of grace is not being manifested, what James starts to question, has saving faith really been there? The grace that comes to save you is the grace that makes you new. And the grace that makes you new starts to produce fruit that shows that the grace of God has been there. That's the Pauline argument. What Paul and James are both saying is that the saving grace of God that shows up apart from our working for it is never without the fruit of good works. When the grace of God shows up, good works go out of the lives of those who have truly received it because that's what God has saved us for. Now, what do we know about these good works? I love the ambiguity here because Paul doesn't unpack them. For we are his workmanship, newly created in Christ Jesus or through Christ Jesus for good works. He doesn't lay out what they are. And I think there's a reason to it, right? I think one of the reasons is he wants us to see this contrast that's been going on all in this section. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but in that same section, God has made you alive and seated you with Jesus that you were corrupted by nature, children of wrath, and now you are God's new creation. You are adopted as sons. You were following the course of the world, but now you love the saints. You see the, the, the contrasting that's going on there? And notice what it says in verse two. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, you down to verse three, that we live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So right there, he says, you once walked that way. Now look at the end of verse 10. These good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. He starts the letter, this section, you were walking this way. And now you're walking this way. In other words, you used to use your members and members are your body, bodily faculties, right? Your hands and your eyes and your feet and your mind. You used to use your eyes to look and feast on people who you were not married to, right? You used to use your hands to steal or to fight or to rob. You used to use your mind to think on evil or think on, man, I got to hit a lick and I just need to come up, right? that you used to use your mind that way, but now in Jesus Christ, you're new, and now you use your mind a different way. I don't think on hitting licks. I think on trusting and following the Lord. I don't think on using my eyes to lust after someone who's not my spouse, right? I, I feast my eyes on the things of the Lord. I used to use my hands to steal, and now I'm going to get a job and work and give. In other words, when he contrasts how you used to walk and now how you're walking in Jesus, here's what he's saying. All the ways you used to follow the passions of your heart, that impulse to follow passion is right. The direction was wrong. He's not saying don't follow your passions. He's not saying cut your eyes out, cut your hands off. He is saying present all of yourself back to God and use all of yourself for God and for God's glory and for God's goodness, that that's what he's getting at. As a matter of fact, I think the good works 
frame the rest of the book. And here's what I mean. What does he talk about in the next section? He talks about Jew and Gentile being separated by culture and alienated by race or ethnicity, if you want to use those words. And he says, what? You used to be this way. And now you're one in Christ. You go read Ephesians four. He says, you who used to steal, you used to steal. But now you're in Christ. Go get a job and work and don't just work so you can have money for yourself. Work that you might give to others. He says, uh, fathers, you used to be harsh with your children, but now you're a child of God. Do not exasperate them. Speak to them in love. Wives, you used to roll your necks and dishonor and disrespect your husbands and talk to them wild and crazy. He says, no, no, no. Now in Christ, you've met your heavenly father who loves you. Honor that man that you have. Husbands, you used to love all of your toys and all of your hobbies. You used to love pursuing whatever you wanted, but now you're in Christ. Lay down your life to wash your wife with the word of God. That's what he's doing throughout the rest of the book. He's showing them what they used to do, and he's assuming that the operative grace of God is now at work, and it's made you new, and because your heart is new, you can now do these things that he's calling us to do. Grace is at the core of it. And that's why I had Anthony read through chapter 12 of our confession of faith. It talks about that. We just confess that. And I'd encourage you in your own time outside of the sermon, go back and look at that section and go back and look at the verses there. If you want to do a really diligent study on grace and how it relates to works, the scripture verses are at the bottom. Isn't that good news? What God calls them to do, he's given them the new heart to do it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. What God calls you to do, he's done it in Jesus. What God calls you and I to obey, he's done it in Jesus. And now the heart is there where these good works can come out of it. But that's not it, right? That's good news. But also the fact that God prepared us beforehand, right? So these good works that he's calling us to, Paul actually says he has prepared them beforehand that we would walk in them. Think about that. This isn't the first time that we've heard the beforehand language. It says you were chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world. And guess what else was given to you before the foundation of the world? the good works that you and I are supposed to walk into, he's already laid them out. He's already prepared the way for you and I to walk in them. And so what this means is it's almost an oxymoron for the church to be known by our words and not our good works. If we can sit up here and argue about precise doctrine and wording, and there is no precise good works that accompany it, we're sort of out of step with how grace really, really works. And if you look at the history of the church, the church has been known for good works. Just this week, we're at St. Dominic's, right? And it dawns on me that I'm walking into a hospital that was created in 1946 by the Dominican Sisters of Springfield, Illinois that they purchased this infirmary 
in the center of what, and then the center of Jackson, and listen to St. Dominic's mission statement. We seek to fulfill our mission by establishing community and performing service in the name of Jesus Christ. This means the giving of our time, talents, and resources to make our communities better places. It's a reason when you drive down State Street, you see Baptist Hospital. If you're from Jackson, you might remember the Methodist Hospital. Have you noticed a trend that these hospitals that treat us now, not just our souls, but our bodies when they're broken, when our bodies aren't working right, that it was Christians, Christians who set these things apart to do these good works that did not end with your soul, but it permeated even caring for the body. So you see Christian hospitals. They were compelled by the gospel and the good works that the Lord had prepared in advance that we would walk in them. It's a reason why if you went to an HBCU, their historically black college, there's a strong chance that that school was started by the church. When black people could not go to school. It was the church. The church the president of Steelman College, where my wife went, was here about two months ago, worshiping with us, right? Steelman is a Presbyterian college in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, started by Presbyterians. I got a chance to go into the Civil Rights Museum this week, the one that's opening up in a few months. One of our student, former students works there and you walk in there and they got these images of what the black church was, right? You see the black church, it was like, it, it kind of reminded me of Redeemer. The church is getting flipped over every day, right? You go to the black church back then in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s, it was everything. It was where we, they passed out food for the poor. It was where they gathered together to pray and to, and to, to start marching. It, was, it, it turned into a school, a place where you could come from the outside and come learn how to read. In other words, it wasn't just about what the church did on Sunday. That black church was functioning in a way to be a blessing to everyone in the neighborhood by doing good works. And that's why I love this church. Because in our mission statement, we're not just going to get up here and talk about the gospel. In our mission statement, we want to proclaim the, the good news of Jesus Christ in word and in what? Deed. So if you're a deacon and you're turning the building over because it's a school, God bless you. Amen. Praise God. If you're volunteering here, opening up the fellowship hall so we can have a thousand Spider-Mans running around here and you're face painting and passing out hot dogs, praise God, God bless you. And if you're in here right now helping people learn how to be gainfully employed through work life, God bless you, praise God. And if you're in here right now and people are struggling with adoption or fostering and you're here to show up monthly to, to, to give respite, God bless you, praise God. This is what the church is designed to do. Not just have good words about the gospel, but good works that adorn that we've been made new. That's a part of being the church. And so I'd encourage you, you know, if, if, if because I think the good works, they have to move just beyond what we do here corporately. I think they move into our own lives. And you will do good works that won't even be affiliated with Redeemer. And so I want to encourage you, 
that God has put each one of us in different spheres of life. If you're a mother at home with children right now, do good works there. Pray and rest and be present. And if you're working and you're working at a school and they're giving you a hard time, pray and and be faithful and and know that God's called you there and he's put you there. If you're in banking and and you want to be fair with who you loan and, and competitive rates like go do good work right there. And if you're driving throughout the back roads of Mississippi, making sure people can get their limbs moving again, go walk up doing good works from the king that wherever God puts you, he says, I want good works right there. Right there. And I know this whole idea can be intimidating. Where do I start, Pastor Earl? Where do I start? Tim Keller wrote a great article on vocation, discerning your calling. He says, start with affinity. What people needs do I resonate with? What breaks your heart in the world? What do you care about? God will give different people, different burdens. And this is by divine design. If everyone equally cared about the same thing, then we would have multitude of things that would not get attended to. But in God's goodness, he calls some to care about righteous laws and righteousness in education and righteousness with prison sentences and righteousness in the courtroom, and righteousness, I mean, this idea that God himself has given and implanted certain affinities in the hearts of his people. And so it's not so much as trying to figure it out so much as it is asking the Lord, what have you put right here in me? Affinity. The second thing is ability. What has God given me to do? What gifts has he given me that, that Charles Spurgeon has a book called Lecture to My Student. And in the second chapter, he has a uh, he has a chapter that's on um, how do men know that they're called to the ministry? And he, he actually has a section on the physical makeup of the preacher. And he says, this is what he says. It sounds kind of harsh. He says that narrow chest does not indicate that a man is formed for public speech. You may think it odd, but I still feel very assured that when a man has a contracted chest with no distance between his shoulders, the all-wise creator did not intend for him to habitually preach. If he had meant him to speak, he would give him some measure of breadth of chest sufficient to yield a reasonable amount of lung force. (laughs) When the Lord means a creature to run, he gives him nimble legs. And if he means a creature to preach, he will give him a suitable build and suitable lungs, right? He says a brother who has to pause mid-sentence to work his air pump should ask himself whether there is not some other occupation he should consider, right? <laughs> you hear what Spurgeon is saying though, right? It's kind of funny when we read it because we're like, ah, oh, anybody you can preach your pieces? No, if you don't have the build for it and the stamina for it, he says go sit down and find something else to do, right? <laughs> it's ability. What has God given to you that helps you do what he's called you to do? So it's not just affinity. 
is the ability there to do it. And the last thing is opportunity. And he says, where does the community I'm in tell me I'm needed? He says, resist the urge of thinking too much of yourself. We've, becoming, we've become utterly individualistic. The better question that we should ask is, what needs around me right now in this local community, in my home and at my job, what can I do here? Do not skip this place. It starts right here. Hear what he's saying? Affinity, ability, and opportunity. And when those things sort of mail together, there you have a sense of calling to good works. That's what I desire for us, Redeemer, that we would know that God's grace shows up before there's anything we can contribute, that you would know God's grace comes to you and it makes you and I new creatures. And because God has made us new, we can actually do good things and good works that bring him honor and glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, I do ask that this would be true for us. May we make much of grace. May we love it. May it work on us. May it compel us to do great and marvelous things for the Lord. We bless you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.